To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious, and hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope. And I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have our very good friend, Betsy Dornbush, author of the Seven Eyes series and the brand new novel, The Silver Scar. Welcome to the show, Betsy. Thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure. So start off by telling us basically the elevator pitch for The Silver Scar. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I wish it was an easy one. It's a futuristic, post-apocalyptic religious crusade. (laughs) Sometimes how I describe it, it's basically about a Christian soldier who knows that a crusade is being launched on a lie and wants to stop it. One, because he's a good Christian and he doesn't want to see a whole bunch of people killed. And two, because he knows that he knows that the bishop that's that's using the silver scar that she has he knows where it came from, and he knows that she basically had to commit heresy to get it. And she says it's from an angel, but it's not. And so he he has to sort of join with some old enemies to stop the crusade. I'm intrigued because I went to the very end and I found out about something that made me very excited, but I didn't realize that the person at the very end is not the same person with the silver scar. So... That's interesting. Some other people have silver scars also, and some people get them, but I won't spoil the story by adding that in. You have to read to find out. Devious of you. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us more about the protagonist of this book, Trinidad. Who is he and what made him that good Christian soldier that you were referring to? He's an orphan. He, he's, in his mid twenties, and he was ra- he was raised Wiccan, and his parents were eco terrorists and blew themselves up in an eco terrorist act, um, which obviously didn't solve any problems, and left him an orphan, killed his little brother too, and left him an orphan, and so he's he's in the city. The city of Boulder is is walled. It's 150 years from now. And so it's, it's got a wall around it to protect it from this kind of rough, rough county that it's in. And so this priest takes him in and, and raises him as a Christian. And so he, he becomes a soldier and they're called arch wardens and they're sort of the elite uh, soldiers of the church. So, you know, think Swiss guard, that kind of, you know, there's lots of soldiers in the church and there's lots of soldiers around in the county and, and in the region, but he's, he's in the sort of elite guard of the church. A paladin of sorts, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
not mine. <laughs> I kid, I kid. So you've mentioned a bit about the fact that obviously he's Christian and the bishop that starts this crusade is Christian. And you mentioned the other half of the equation, which is that you have Wiccans in this world. So I'm kind of curious what made you decide to do a premise that's essentially a religious war between Christians and Wiccans, particularly sort of given the context of coming at this from a modern U.S. woman. Right. Well, I've lived in Boulder a long time, and um, there's a lot of different faiths represented here. So I kind of, I guess I kind of drew from that a little bit. But I think in some respects, the Christian church is still today and potentially would be later more organized. So they're sort of end up end up being the ones with the money and the control and people sort of, even people who maybe were raised Christian but weren't, you know, aren't really super devout would flock to them because they, you know, in need because they would be the ones that would have the money and control. And I think I said that there's several religions represented in the in the story. And some, some I even kind of made up because it's 150 years from now. And if communication things have broken down and, and some learning has broken down, people start to do their own, their own thing. Um but I think, you know, it, it, it's also kind of about how the eco-terrorists aren't really, you know, that's sort of their excuse for their act, but they're not really doing any good. And I think so. On the flip side of that, it's sort of like, well, we're using, you know, Christianity as an excuse, but it, it's really more a war over resources and control and power. Than it is, I guess, religion. It's um, I, I often see religion as being this sort of mechanism for war rather than the actual true motivation. Is that if that makes sense? That makes perfect sense. That was actually sort of my follow up point was that most ideological wars are based completely on economics, essentially, and who has who wants the power and who has the power. Very cool. I am interested in this angle. It's one of my favorite angles, as a matter of fact. So we've talked a little bit about this before in a previous interviews, but you tend to focus on male protagonists, which I find fascinating. Why do you continue to explore male protagonists? And what do you find so compelling about writing male characters? Because you have a second male character that is in this book that I would like to learn more about too, Castile. Right, Castile. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of men in this book. In fact, really, the main woman, one of the main women, is the bishop. Um, you know, I think there could be a lot of reasons behind it. I, it could be what I read. You know, growing up, it could be sometimes I think there's like a sexy angle, you know, I'm straight, so I'm kind of attracted to men. So I'm kind of, you know, like to have the idea, you know, idea of spending time with men. <laughs> Your poor husband. Yeah, right. I, I, I also had, um, you know, even growing up, I mean, my best friend in high school was a guy, you know, uh, so I think I in a lot of ways, I relate better sometimes to men than I do to women, which I'm, I'm not sure is really true anymore. 
but I think it was like in my twenties, I always felt like girls sort of had this world that I didn't belong to. And I could sort of fit in with guys without really having to fit in because I wouldn't because I'm a girl. Right. But so I think, it, I don't know, it, it's, there's probably some really weird psychological stuff around it that I don't even know. <laughs> so maybe I'll just go with the sexy angle and leave it at that. <laughs> I actually just wrote, I actually just wrote a book with a female protagonist though. So. Oh, exciting. So I've broken my, I've broken my streak. You yeah. have. And, and I'll, I'll say, I'll just sort of make a little segue to Castile because he's, he's sort of the love interest. He's an old, he's, he's Wiccan. He's an eco-terrorist who's been in prison. He's a, he's a killer and he's just released. And Trinidad has no idea when the story starts that he's alive and it's not really spoiling anything because it's, he's, he's in the second chapter. So it's pretty obvious. But I thought because he became a love interest. There was so much chemistry immediately, um, which I didn't really plan. And it's not a lot of love interest. I keep them pretty busy, so they don't have a lot of time to really fall in love. But they're definitely interested in each other and attracted to each other. And I kept thinking, you know, I wrote this book. I keep saying ten years. It may might be eight. I don't remember. And I keep and I kept, you know, I kept thinking, oh boy, this would be so much easier if Castile was a woman. I guess kind of scared to tackle the whole homosexuality angle and 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 worried, just worried about how it would be taken. Of, of course, that was a while ago, and now like nobody, I guess, would really think twice. I mean. I hope most readers wouldn't think twice about it. But, you know, he just wasn't. He just was not a woman. He's he's not. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't working. I mean, I did try it early on. Um, and then that would have been, you know, a female character that I would have written. Right. <laughs> I did. <laughs> well, it's not like you haven't written female characters. They just tend not to be your protagonists. So you've mentioned that this is a sort of genre mashup. Obviously, it's definitely fantasy, but you also have a bit of urban fantasy thrown in and the post-apocalyptic angle. What made you want to work with kind of familiar a familiar world, familiar people with a familiar history to an extent in the silver scar. Um, you know, the, the whole book, and I had to think this over, um, actually for another interview and then I remembered. So in a, in about 2002, 2003, Folsom Field, CU's football field was enlarged and they built up, uh, the Eastern Wall, which has a lot more seating and there's rooms up there and stuff. It's very cool in there. And I, I remember driving by it and I was still relatively new to the area. And I remember driving by it and going, Oh my gosh, that looks like a prison. And, and then I started immediately thinking, well, what, what if it was like, what kind of world would that be if that was a prison? And so it kind of stemmed from that. And at the time I wasn't really plotting. Um, I, I tend to plot now, but at the time, I, I didn't. I just sort of wrote, and so I ended up just sort of pulling a bunch of things that I'm interested in and sort of mashing them all together. Like um, I frequently have silver and mirrors in my story. I'm fascinated by graveyards, and I'm very interested in the Crusades and what motivated those people. I'm interested in Christianity. It's I, you know. I am Christian, but I don't think that's what motivates me. And it's even more his, more than historical. It's I'm interested in the psychology of it, and and I'm interested in religion and and why people are religious and why they're not. And I like you know hot guys with swords and, <laughs> <laughs> and 
you know, and I could justify that. Um, and I also like guns. <laughs> so I, I could justify having both because I think it's reasonable that weaponry would change if you don't have the ability to, you know, to make bullets and to make good ammunition. You're going to be a lot more careful with how you use those weapons. Uh, versus a sword is, you know, you sort of make it and then you have it. So it's like an expensive thing up front. I could argue that guns would be without, you know, with limited manufacturing, guns could be even tougher to acquire, to make and acquire. So, yeah, so it just was really me taking a bunch of things that I like and putting them all together. I don't know if I really answered your question. (laughs) No, you absolutely did, because now this is actually starting to sound like the medieval version of Into the Badlands, which, A, (laughs) brilliant. But I actually also had, harkening back to my earlier question, where it is, again, about resources and power, how the actual relationships between people were destroyed. There's a ton of tension between Castile and, and Trinidad. Um, you know, they were best friends till they were 12 and, um, and did everything together. And then all of a sudden Trinidad disappears and, 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 and he loses everything he knows, you know, and, um, and, and he, and he's angry. He doesn't even want it back. You know, I think he thinks if this is what Wicca is, which obviously it's not, um, you know, but with, through his parents' act, he he doesn't even want to be anything to do with it. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of tension between the characters that way. And there's a lot of talk uh, about what makes a good archwarden. And, 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 by, and by any account, Trinidad's a good archwarden. He's faithful. He does, he does basically what's ordered of him. Um, he speaks his mind, but there's no law against speaking his mind. So he, he is a good, he is a good Christian. And he's motivated by the right, you know, he is motivated by the right thing. What what I would call like real righteousness, not, you know, not just because. Not prescribed righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, awesome. I'm looking forward to this. Awesome. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and your work and buy a copy of The Silver Scar? Right. Um, you can get the book anywhere books anywhere you like to buy books on any platform except for hardback it's not a hardback and um, which has been nice because it keeps the price reasonable and i usually i'm just found if you google my name betsy dornbush you can find me easily i'm betsydornbush.com and i'm betsy dornbush under twitter and instagram and you can find me on facebook but i'm i'm fading away from there so that's not not a good place to find me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Instagram, if if you want to see weird, fun things, and Twitter, if you want to hear me yap about weird, fun things, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Betsy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great talking to you. Always. And listeners, make sure that you go check out Betsy Dornbush on Instagram, Twitter, not on Facebook but also wherever fine books are sold and buy a copy of The Silver Scar.
Welcome to the Escaping Fantasy Show. I'm Sean, and today on Signaboost, we have Dax Murray, author of Birthing Orion and Other Delightful Tales. Welcome to the show, Dax. Hi, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, so to start us off, what is Birthing Orion? Tell us a little bit about this rather interesting and unique project. Birthing Orion started off as a series of really melodramatic breakup poems and morphed into kind of this tale of two goddesses who have a lot of what seem like irreconcilable differences. One is this cosmic creator and the other is this like divine destroyer. And the nature of, of creating the galaxy is uh, very messy both in in the book and in like actual astrophysics so it is a lot of poems about astrophysics but told from the point of view of this creator who's kind of getting started of like oh i'm gonna make this i'm gonna make this and this destroyer that's going back around and going i'm gonna destroy that and at first the creator's very like "Ooh, you broke this down and now it's like messy and i can make, make something else out of it but their relationship goes on and they have kind of expectations of what the other should be doing and it starts to break down a little bit and it's all told in verse there's way too many villanelles because i just really like that structure but some sonnets free verse uh terzarima and a lot of really gorgeous art that i didn't do (laughs) (laughs) so i do want to eventually talk about the art but i want to get to this the the astrophysics side of this, because I remember when you, you first described it, you were talking about, you know, sh- they're creating black holes. And and immediately I thought, but this is a love story. So what is effectively romantic about black holes, which, you know, typically are just seen emptiness that sucks everything into it. But the way you kind of treat it is is much more in the, in the form of a love story. And I was and I you kind of talked a little bit about that, but I was hoping you can kind of go into it a little bit more about what we can really pull from that in in terms of a love story. Well, at the center, it's theorized. We've never found one yet that doesn't have a black hole at the center. But at the center of every galaxy that we found is a black hole. And it's kind of the glue that keeps the galaxy together. If that black hole wasn't at the center, you would see a lot of stars kind of like flying off, no real glue to hold it together. A lot of you know, the Big Bang happened and everything's expanding outwards, and so would all of the stuff in galaxies. So if you have created this lovely galaxy, and you see that it starts to drift apart, and you're like, crap. And then your lover is like, I got you, babe. I'll put a black hole here, and it'll keep everything together just like you wanted it to be. And you're kind of like, great, that's awesome. And then you realize that it does a little bit more than that. But it was a, a ge- making black holes was a gesture of love from from the destroyer to the creator. It's so it's so odd to have to, to try to like I'm a human being and try to put myself in the the, the mindset of decidedly non human that is on that on that cosmic scale. But yet, I, in a way that perhaps there's a sort of weirdly natural romanticism behind the cycles of creation and destruction. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, when the universe started, all the elements that we have today did not exist. All the elements that we have today, except for um, the first two, hydrogen and helium, were made from early stars dying and exploding. So it goes through the nuclear fissure process, and that's how you get heavier and heavier elements. And then that star explodes, and that's how you end up 
with stars that don't have that don't burn like helium to start with and that's how we get a lot of the heavier ones and we haven't even made it through as far as we know all of the elements yet there could be still more being made in the center of stars right now so that we have like these proto galaxies and these really early stars that had to be destroyed in order for us to get to where we are today that's a uh, oddly exciting <laughs> It was wild way back then. <laughs> no kidding. It must have been. If you were a cosmic being of some scale, it must have been pretty wild. Oh, that's what that's what a lot of like their early relationship is. Ooh, I'm going to make this. And then, ooh, I'm going to see what happens when you destroy it. And what I can make from that. And then, haha, I made this. You have fun destroying this. And oh, no, now I've got heavier metals. What can I do with them? So a lot of excitement and playing that happens. And I tried to make it so that a lot of the early poems are very, very unstructured because the galaxy was unstructured. And as it goes on, uh, they fall more and more into different forms, villanelles or sonnets. And I really enjoyed playing with, with how the structure of the galaxy fit in with the structure of the poems. So part of this is, is obviously the kind of the, the astrophysics angle, kind of looking at a somewhat less ordered universe. And then as the poems become more ordered, in a way, the, the universe becomes more ordered into, I suppose, what we see of it is now. But it, it, did you also see that as, as sort of coupling with sometimes how relationships develop in a, in a kind of the kind of chaotic... You know, the way you're describing it, it seems to me like you're saying that at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of that kind of passion, like we're doing all of these things and it's kind of free, free flowing and, and explosive, not literally and figuratively. And then as things, you know, change, um, they can become less that over time. Yeah, the galaxy settles into a routine and so do, do people in relationships. And that's where a lot of the tensions start is okay we figured out most of this universe ruling and now we have to deal with you know like that explosive energy from the beginning is starting to wear off that entropy is the big bang is not as expansive anymore it's slowing down and having to look at who you're with and the part of them that you might not have seen at the start and realizing that there's more to them than just play yeah people are messy and complicated Yep, and sometimes they want stuff that you don't want. <laughs> True. <laughs> that also unfortunately happens. So we, we've talked a little bit about the kind of thematics of it, but you'd also mentioned that you approached this through a variety of poetic forms, and I was curious about, A, why did you choose to write this in verse, and B, what what is it that you think makes different types of poetic writing really effective at exploring the kind of speculative elements of a story? If you look at my journals, which please don't, <laughs> <laughs> most of what I'm writing is usually in, in poem form. I just find it really a concise form to get my thoughts out really quickly. And, and they will never leave my hard drive, a lot of these. But about three of the poems in this were like originally journal entries and were just really quick spur of the moment. I'm angry. I'm sad. I don't know what's going on. And supernova was the, the theme of that was, it was the way I could express myself. And I think that sometime later it kind of developed into a, wait a minute, I could do something with that. And I think 
the way that wordplay works and you poetry is a lot about expectations and surprise um you have this structure you have this order a sonnet has 14 lines depending on if you're doing like an italian or english sonnet a, a certain rhyme scheme and the meter iambic pentameter um and what can you do within that structure to surprise people to get people to think they know what's coming and then you know flip that on its head there's i can't remember the name or the author of it now there's a poem that i'm thinking about it's like three lines and it's you and i fit together like a hook and an eye a fish hook in a fish's eye or something like that where it's it, you think it's going to be romantic and then it turns at the last line something like oh that's horrifying and i think that a lot of science fiction is taking something that we all know and and thinking about how it could be different whether that be into a fantasy setting or a science fiction setting or a horror setting like the speculative is is we have something that we know and how can we change it to make us reconsider what we know about it and so i think that like poetry for a speculative story is a very is a very good fit especially when you consider the ways in which the cultural moment is subverting and inverting tropes right now is taking the trope that everybody knows and seeing how far we can stretch it or how we can examine it and i think poetry is a really good lens for that i think so too I'm not sure why, because I'm not any good at poetry. I also have journals of, of poems that will never see the light of day until I become a little bit masochistic and decide why not post it on Twitter. <laughs> I think the poem you were thinking of is actually Margaret Atwood. Well, I, I Googled it real quick, and it's called You Fit Into Me by Margaret Atwood. And it you fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, and open eye. But uh, that is a poem that I feel like is supposed to destroy your soul. Yep, that was, I think, the like the second poem I had to read for, for my intro to poetry class in, in uh, college. And it, it decimated me at the time. <laughs> That's a hell of a place to start. Like, let's start with Margaret Atwood. Whew. Yeah. So I was hoping you could tell me a little about, about the art because the art is, is as you'd mentioned, and, and I had a chance to kind of look over some of the artwork uh, as well as some of the, the poems. And, the art is quite exceptional, and you did happen to get a really good artist for for the illustration. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the cover illustration is Marilisa Chan. She is really amazing at illustration. She's done quite a few spec fic covers. She did the Waters of Salt and Sin series, the Air Awakened series. There's a lot that she's she's done she's really great at illustration she also does like dnd characters if you want somebody to draw your dnd characters and then the interior is by aurelia frey of pretty af designs she did all the interior illustrations she also did the interior illustrations for the chapter art and stuff for uh my novel uh like a feather and moonbeams and i'm probably going to keep going to her because she does really good work but i i handed her the manuscript and told her to just have fun basically <laughs> i didn't know what she was going to come back with and i was really really happy when she was sending me some of the initial drafts 
of what she'd been working on. The, the art is is really good. I don't know what you just got like the luck of the stars or something because you've got some really good work in here. I just think that's that's fantastic. What made you want to ha- I mean, it, it seems like a silly question because why not? But why illustrations? Uh, why not just have the text alone? I really wanted something that kind of fit with the poems. Like I wanted something to really... I'm not sure how to explain it. I really like space art. (laughs) That's a perfectly fine reason. (laughs) (laughs) I think there should be more art of space in the world. I agree completely. (laughs) Space is beautiful. It is. I have my um, Chromecast set up so that it only displays pictures from like NASA or Hubble. You basically have the astronomy picture of the day. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, the the pictures we take of space, I mean, the, the, they are as beautiful as some of the artwork that humans have created about the stuff on Earth. They're just gorgeous, and it's mysterious and wonderful, the crazy stuff that exists out there. Nebula are amazing. Yes. The Orion Nebula. That is what the book is named after, is is the supernova that created the Orion Nebula. And it's pretty. (laughs) It is. It's my favorite nebula. Don't tell tell anybody else that. Okay, I I won't let the Crab Nebula know. Thank you, I appreciate that. Okay, so we're darking about space a bit, but you had mentioned that you've got some other work in the pipeline, and if I recall, one of them was a little unicorny. Tell us a little bit about what's coming next. So uh, the project I'm working on right now is uh, a series of short stories that all kind of focus around the same event happening, the same prophecy that people are talking about, but from like different points of view. And it's focused around this unicorn people. Um, they are very secluded from the rest of the world. They have metal magic they can sense where metal is they can shape it they can bend it um they think metal is very sacred and the metal is how they kind of form their horns and attach them to their heads um and it has different meanings for whatever metal they're using and i really wanted to explore prophecy who gets to be a chosen one and hierarchies and fantasy um most fantasy is like oh uh, there's this this prince or princess or prince then or princess. I don't even know how many other different variations of heir to the throne you can throw out there. I use prince then for gender neutral in my novel. I know there's other forms that people use though, but usually it is, you know, some heir to, to some sort of dynasty, whether that be like Luke Skywalker to the, to the Vaders or, you know, a literal heir to a throne. I wanted to explore different government structures in fantasy, how like a socialist government might work in fantasy and who does and doesn't get to be prophesied to to do something great. But I also really wanted to do unicorns better than Anne McCaffrey, which is really hard to do, but Hey you've you've set yourself up for a heck of a heck of a thing there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that sounds that sounds very interesting, and I also would be very curious how how a socialist government would work in a in a fantasy setting, especially since overwhelmingly fantasy settings are essentially feudal and some you know variations therein. So, be interesting to explore how does how does a society with that level of technology function in a socialist system or other forms of systems as they may be. That be that could be very interesting. Yeah, like there's a lot of socialist science fiction. You've got like Star Trek, you know, um, but not a lot of of fantasy deviates from monarchy or monarchy light. Well, all right. So, uh, big question now: Where can folks find you? On Twitter, mostly. I'm Dax Eterna on Twitter. DaxMurray.com is my website. And my books are all listed there. Um, and I've got a Patreon that has one of the short stories from what I'm working on right now, on it right now, um, which is also Daxy Terna. My cats are on Twitter too. I'm still making my snakes a Twitter bot. Um, they're a little camera shy, so it's kind of hard to get good pictures of them. Like I can get with my cats. I don't really quite have enough pictures yet to make a, a bot for them, um, but it's Dax's cat on Twitter. Um, new cat picture every hour the the great thing is you're using bots for joy instead of slowly destroying society yes <laughs> the, yes the good kind of bots these are the bots we want on twitter folks <laughs> cat bots the best kind of bot <laughs> do you follow um pepito pepito's a good cat bot too i don't know that one it's a french cat and it just it, they've got it hooked up to their cat flap so it'll tweet a picture when the cat is coming home and it'll say like Pepito is home and then it'll tweet a picture when, when Pepito leaves and you know Pepito is out okay I'm gonna be I'm gonna be wasting a little bit of time there uh, because this, this is delightful uh, I will make sure that this uh, the Pepito the cat bot is also linked along with uh, with your other links so that folks can enjoy this delightfulness perfect well, thank you so much, Dax, for coming on for Signal Boost and talking about everything, uh, your work and uh, poetry and all that lovely stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Awkward ending and scene. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org. Yeah.